0: what if everything you thought of health and wellness suddenly changed due to a hidden breathing problem that you are unaware of that affects every system in your body improper breathing habits are often overlooked in medicine i'm dr jenny from the hobson institute and this is the breathing lab hi everyone i am so excited to start this podcast this is with a dear patient and friend uh, dr joshua Wetschler. He is a assistant professor of pediatrics in the division of gastroenterology and hepatology and nutrition at Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago, and he's assistant professor of medicine in the division of allergy and immunology at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, and also in Chicago. So, Dr. Weschler is a uh, researcher and a clinician, and what I want to share with you is what the types of patients he he. Typically sees, it's the vast majority have eosinophilic gastrointestinal disorders, such as eosinophilic esophagitis, eosinophilic gastritis, eosinophilic dudenditis. I'm probably saying these wrong, I'm sorry. Um, but the primary symptom is dysphagia. And many of these patients have chronic regurgitation, rumination. Um, also, they have hypermobility, dysautonomia. And commonly, these patients all range um, with different symptoms between the ages of nine months to 22 years. So we have someone that's very skilled in the research and the treatment for all of these things. And the symptoms really vary. They they can be, you know, food aversions for children, young children, vomiting, choking. Uh, The older children may have a chronic cough feeling of food passing slowly or getting stuck um, chronic regurgitation is quite common and can be associated with like hiatal her, hiatal her- hernias and also um, it it's just this is a very very important podcast I think because a lot of parents don't know that this type of um, specialty exists in in pediatrics and we have the the benefit of having Dr. Weschler here and Dr. Weschler, thank you so, so much for coming to this podcast and sharing your time. I know how busy you are with research and and treating, so thank you.
1: Truly, my pleasure.
0: So Dr. Weschler, tell me something. Um, I want to share with the, the audience a little bit about how we met and why we met. If you feel comfortable with it, I would love for you to share.
1: So in in fact, uh, I started off as a patient of yours, and that was our initial experience. Um, I myself uh, had a little bit of a rough go with uh, COVID, and uh, it led to a number of uh, post-COVID or long COVID symptoms uh, that included tinnitus and headaches and uh, some brain fog and body aches, dizziness, uh, a number of things that... Really, I had trouble putting two and two together as far as how I was going to get over. And uh, But one of the standout symptoms for me was really the tinnitus. And I started off seeing an ENT who really just thought it would go away on its own. Um, it ultimately did not. And, um, and then I was fortunate to meet another ENT Um, that uh, did a very thoughtful exam and discovered that I was having a lot of muscle spasm throughout the head and neck muscles. And so he referred me to you with the understanding that this actually has potential to improve tinnitus, along with a number of the other symptoms I was having, which frankly blew my mind to think that Uh, physical therapy had the potential to improve tinnitus, because my sort of understanding of tinnitus was that you get damage to some aspect of the inner ear, the hearing, um, and that this is ultimately the primary cause of tinnitus. Maybe there's inflammation involved, and those are just sort of the core aspects, but the thought process being that there's actually a much more holistic understanding of how tinnitus occurs was really, uh, truly uh, mind blowing. So we met, I remember I was a bit late for my appointment. Um, and one of the first experiences uh, that we had, and of course you took an incredible physical exam um, and I was truly amazed by that myself, um, was that you plugged me into the capnometer. So this is a machine that has the ability to measure your respiratory rate um, and tidal CO2. And measuring end-tidal CO2 is incredibly important because we know if a person's breathing at rest, what a normal end-tidal CO2 should be. And if it's off, it really indicates that there, in fact, is a significant problem. It doesn't always tell you what the problem is, but at least it gives you a pathway in terms of how to solve it. And um, as I've dug more into an understanding, particularly in the last six, six, nine months of long COVID, There's emerging research now that really suggests that uh, dysfunctional diaphragm, hyperventilation, low end tidal CO2 may in fact be a core aspect of long COVID. So lo and behold, when you plugged me in, I had a very low end tidal CO2. I recall it was either somewhere around high 20s or low 30s, normal being in the low 40s. My respiratory rate was in the 20s, normal being uh, around 12 to 14. Um, And that was eye-opening to me immediately. And so on the first day that we met, you taught me uh, diaphragmatic breathing. And I will say that I have taught patients diaphragmatic breathing for years. And um, I really didn't have a deep understanding of the optimal way to do diaphragmatic breathing. One of the most eye-opening parts of what you taught me was that it's not so much about the inhale as much as it is about the exhale and um and you taught me a humming technique that i use very regularly um that uh frankly within one week much of my symptoms had improved significantly in particular the brain fog was nearly gone in the dizziness um and those that was really incredible to me um and over the course of time we have had some really incredible experiences learning um a variety of stretches for the head and neck muscles, which I was completely unaware of, um, uh, along with um, a technique called dry needling, um, which I was frankly very averse to, I think when we first met and um, really didn't have a very deep understanding of what it actually does. Um, but And I'm sure you could explain it a lot better than me, but, I, but what I've learned to appreciate with dry needling is, is that you can target a spasmed muscle and induce that muscle to relax and ultimately cause micro trauma into that muscle that allows increased blood flow and healing of that muscle so that muscle will spasm less over time? And
0: let me just share with you that's that's pretty close. And, and what I share with everybody that has it for the first time if you haven't had dry needling, it is something that you should try before surgery, before any surgery, if there's pain muscles refer pain and that's one thing that people don't get not all the doctors are are in tune with the referred pain patterns of muscles like for example the the sternocleidomastoid muscle can refer behind the eye presenting itself like a migraine and people are on all kinds of medicine and you could do dry needling and then correct the posture and improve the way that the muscle works so it's kind of a reset of the muscle um, we kind of use our, our hands as palpating physical therapists, where is that top band? Where is that trigger point? You insert that needle directly into that top band, and the muscle starts to twitch. And there are, there's many hypotheses, lots of research going on, no one really knows exactly what, but those re- the releases, those synapses, um, those twitches, release chemicals, They get rid of the chemicals that they found in the research, which are bradykinin's, interleukin G, CRPG, substance P, that really shouldn't be in a muscle. We needle it, they've retested it, and they're gone. That's not to say that they'll come back. If you breathe improperly, if you continue your bad posture and your bad repetitive um, behavior, you have to kind of clean that up. And then all of that starts to go away. So, yes, you have been very brave to do all of the, the needling that we've wanted to do and i think it's really helped like the needling that we do for the jaw and the neck help relieve the pressure in the ear
1: yeah so and that's and, been my experience as well and um you know over time actually because of all that insight i was able to actually pinpoint which muscles were clearly be spasming um and able to actually replicate the tinnitus Um, with pressure on those direct trigger points. Um, So again, really just fueling that understanding um, of that interrelationship between the the muscles, the muscle spasm um, and uh, and how it's ultimately causing that uh, weird sensation in your ear that you thought was something else you didn't understand. So absolutely redefined my understanding of what a physical therapist is, what a physical therapist can do, Um, I think I generally had an understanding of the physical therapist working on the lower back and mobility, um, but I never had this perception of sort of a head and neck physical therapist. And when I talk to patients or I talk to people um, as well um, that are colleagues and friends, um, they really generally don't perceive that this is a really critical role for a physical therapist. And it's a specialty too. It's not, a, it's not just a general physical, physical therapist. It's someone that receives very specialized training to have an expertise in how to perform the dry needling appropriately and to um, teach the appropriate strengthening and stretching exercises that are critical like you said, things that you have to correct on a daily basis that ultimately uh, facilitate that overtime healing process. And that's been my experience. Um, I think nearly 80% of my symptoms are improved. I have a little bit of hearing loss in one of my ears, and that's probably going to be responsible for a very low amount of the tinnitus um, over time, and stale may go away over time as it gets quieter and quieter. Um, but uh, my experience thus far has been profound and virtually all of the remaining symptoms I listed early on are actually resolved at this point.
0: Great, I am so happy to hear that. Um, Dr, Dr. Matsuoka, I'm gonna share a little bit because I think that's who his office referred you and it is. You know, he's, he's also a special doctor just like you. He came to my practice and observed what we did. Once he saw what we did, he's like, I know how you can help me. I know how you can help my patients. And so I taught him how to massage and palpate these muscles in the mouth, the pterygoids, the the sternocleidomast. So he he knows how to identify patients that could benefit from this type of treatment. And I, I have to tell you, Dr. Wessler, this, pra, this practice is very unique because we you know, I teach craniofacial certification through a university, University of St. Augustine. So there it's it's a it's a specialty, I wish there was more therapists, you know, I'm actively trying to grow the practice and grow the profession. But um, I'm also always bringing in other, um, you know, other professions into the practice because it's like you need a team to work on patients you cannot do it yourself you need someone that works on breathing someone that works on posture someone that works on swallowing and tongue posture like did you realize all that about the tongue like we've talked tongue (laughs) who talks tongue in physical therapy our practice talks tongue all the time because what does the tongue do it supports the airway it creates the right seal for resting it creates the right posture so that you're not in an airway posture because your tongue is down and your airway is starting to collapse in the back it creates the right swallow so i think that has been part of what we're doing with you as well and what's your anything that has come up around your experience in the tongue
1: Yeah, I mean, we did a lot of biofeedback type of uh, exercises early on. And as I'm sitting here listening to you, I'm resting my tongue on the roof of my mouth much as we uh, practice. And I think it's just become second nature now. Um, But going through a variety of different exercises, I remember one of them was called GOPEX. Um, We uh, use these like special candies that can help uh, do with biofeedback or just sort of counting type exercises. Um, some stretches that involve the tongue on the roof of the mouth as well. I incorporate that into the diaphragmatic breathing. When I talk to patients about diaphragmatic breathing, the tongue on the roof of the mouth is a key part of that for me as well. Um, And I, I do agree with you that keeping the tongue in the right position is core to helping you maintain that appropriate posture and really allowing your airway to function properly. Um, one thing I would say as you were talking um, that reminded me of one of my own experiences um, that Dr. Matsuoka had, and I'm just so blessed for encountering him and his thoughtfulness and clearly his experiences with you was that aha moment that he had watching you because I had that same moment as well. And I think I told you, and it may not have been at our first visit, but one of my, one of my second or third ones, I know how you can help me. And, um, and I wasn't referring to me personally, I was actually referring to my patients. And um, so it, 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 as we were working together, it really started to quick, um, not just how this was benefiting me personally, but how, um, how many patients really lack these basic skills, um, not just adults, but no doubt children, and, um, and that this really has a great potential to improve um, their overall well-being.
0: I agree. I I recently referred a little, a little one, a little boy, I think he's eight years old that um, came in to the office and he came in with his dad and he said for a year and a half, he's been doing this breathing thing, this breathing thing where he and he's and, and I'm like, oh, what, what, what is that? And he goes, no, he does that all day. And he's been taken to some doctors and doctors say stop doing that you know just stop doing that like just stop right and i hooked him up to the capnometer he was breathing 35 breaths per minute 35 and i know little ones will breathe faster but not 35 and he was at 20 co2 20 millimeters of mercury so i and i'm like i i get the chills because i'm like i wish there were more people right i wish there were more people that were were trained this way and i'm i'm hoping to grow it but he would not be intercepted the right way right that that just because the bre- that machine tells a lot that's yeah so and i work I've, I've we've only worked together twice and he's much better after just one session of saying okay yeah close your mouth right he had his mouth open all day long breathing through his mouth all day long. So he's over breathing, heavy breathing, mouth breathing, tongue posture down, um, dry throat, you know, all of that creates a change in the way you swallow. And in and, and just the, the health of this throat region. So I, I commend you, I think you're amazing. I think you're, you're a communicator, you're you are someone that connects people. And um, I just find you amazing in that sense, because you're, you want to change the health of your patients. And I kind of want to do that too. We, we both have that similar goal of changing the world kind of like, let's, yeah. let's make everybody better.
1: So yeah, um, it was, you know, several years ago, uh, and I don't remember exactly where it was maybe four, or some five years ago. You know, I started to recognize that, you know, most of my patients, as you mentioned, have an esophagitis. They have inflammation of their esophagus. And so, of course, I'm doing a lot of endoscopy and biopsying, and we base a lot of our decision making on, you know, how the biopsies look. But I I quickly learned that if I just simply focus on the esophagus, my patients don't really always get better. And um, so much of what they experience is actually a learned behavior. It's an adaptive behavior. And you, you, you can't simply tell a person, especially a child, just stop that they, they don't even generally understand that they're doing it in the first place, or even for that matter why they're doing it. And, um, and I would say I fell into that category, the things that I was doing, uh, when I met you, I had no idea what was happening to me or what I was doing. And, and so it is crucial that you get trained to unlearn a behavior. And that's really the value of these uh, biofeedback based exercises um and i i I had a great experience maybe it was the second or third time i was on the capnometer at a repeat session and i just naturally was able to get that machine up to about 43. i think even when i started i was at 40 40 something you were able
0: to get there just by a little tweaking little training yep yep i agree like you you were trainable from the beginning but you were unaware of what you don't know you don't know how to change right so um yeah I'm, I'm so grateful. Um, I was going to ask you in your field, not many people understand what we do. What would you recommend for other profession, professions, professionals in your field to be aware of in terms of the treatment of this type of patient population, knowing what we know together and what, what would you do? What would you recommend for them to just be aware of?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely challenging. I think they have to get face-to-face with someone like you or someone like me who's worked with someone like yourself. And, um, and then there's a little bit of a leap of faith and, um, and connecting the dots. I think that's a challenge for, uh, for many physicians um, to sort of navigate outside of their lane and uh, most doctors really prefer to stay within their lane. I think one thing that was very exciting to me and notable about Dr. Matsuoka is, is that he wanted to fix a problem without surgery. And, um, and that you know, you're seeing a surgeon, you think you're gonna get surgery to fix a problem. I think that was my impression actually going in there that I was gonna have some form of surgery to fix a problem. And so to, I think there's oftentimes when it comes to things like physical therapy, which is definitely much more of a holistic type of approach to dealing with a problem. And it's certainly not the only solution to deal with the problem. You, you, I always generally tell patients that I see medical problems as sort of layered on top of each other. You know, I kind of describe it like this. You know, and, and the tough part for the doctor is sort of seeing what each layer is. And sometimes you have to peel away one layer to see what the next layer is and how you're going to go ahead and address it. And I've had patients that came in a, a year after the fact, and they were like, you know, I'm still having headaches and nobody ever was able to solve it. And I was, and I asked them, where are those headaches? And they're like, they're in my temples. I was like, oh, are you clenching your jaw at night or grinding your teeth? <laughs> oh, yes, I am. Okay, well now I think I know how to solve that one. You know. And so it, it, it requires not only the, the questions, but um, that little leap of faith of how you deal with problems and kind of a deeper understanding. So I think that there's not an easy solution. I think doctors have to read about it. They have to hear lectures. Um, you know, I think for someone like yourself, you know, it would be great to have you come and give a lecture at some point to our faculty for them to begin to understand potential benefits of head a net physical therapy um, in, um, in treating functional types of issues that we perceive as something that needs a GI-based solution, but in fact may need a physical therapy solution. But, you know, exposure is really the only option for, for doctors. And I think many will be closed off to it, but many will benefit from it and love it. And, um, and hopefully that will lead to uh, more improved outcomes for patients in the end
0: yeah i agree and i would be i would be willing and grateful to have the opportunity to present in front of your group at any point so um i love that you say the leap of faith right the leap of faith you 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 don't know someone that well the professional that you've met you've learned a lot but it's like how does someone start to refer it's like i always tell my 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 physicians and my dentists my oral surgeons i i see a, a bunch of different types of head and neck patients so i say just try one patient one patient see what what that patient comes back to you expressing do they feel any better do they are they getting any better um it's scary to do to to step outside the lane it is scary as a physician because you don't you you don't want to hurt your patient you don't want to you know give them the bad bad advice but um physical therapy is very holistic and it's it's not the end all for sure we are a part of the team we want to be a part of the team we want to help your patients so um if if any of your patients have similar problems as we've been talking i think head and neck craniofacial physical therapy myofunctional therapy and breathing retraining is critical so um let me ask you one more thing i just I want like a little tiny uh, summary of anything cool that you're learning in your research. I I think it's so cool that you are a researcher and you're doing such great things. What are you up to right now that is that we can share with the public? Not too complicated of terminology, but (laughs) what can you share with us? What are you doing in terms of research?
1: Yeah. So the, I, I do a bunch of domains of research, um, both clinical types of research as well as um, lab-based research. And in my lab-based research, um, we focused on this very specialized immune cell called mast cells. And the mast cell is sort of best well-known for food allergy uh, because it binds this immunoglobulin called IgE. And when it encounters food particles, it causes that mast cell to explode. And then you get all sorts of symptoms like hives and anaphylaxis with breathing issues. Um, But in my disease that we take care of, eosinophilic esophagitis, mast cells are in very high number and they appear to be firing off very intensely. And what fire causes them to fire off and what that ultimately leads to is not well understood. Um, but mast cells make a large number of molecules. In fact, some of the molecules that you listed uh, in the- um, Trigger points. In the trigger points are actually mast cell mast cell associated molecules. They they may trigger mast cells or they may be produced by mast cells. You mentioned bradykinin and substance P. Those are two key ones um, that mast cells are involved in. And mast cells are often found at sites of inflammation Um, And we think that they're ultimately crucial, their activation is crucial in driving the the barrier defects. The disease I take care of is is kind of like a broken fence or a broken wall. Um, The esophagus is a very unique organ in the GI tract because it sits in between the mouth and the stomach. Its sole job really is to transit food past uh, past the heart and lungs to the digestive organs, Um, but it doesn't really do any digestion it encounters foods in sort of their intact format largely. And it has a very unique barrier that's much thicker than any other part of the GI tract, which is just one cell thick. This is many cells thick. Um, But when broken open, it creates this exposure to the immune system and uh, facilitates uh, abnormal responses to food. Um, And that, for whatever reason, seems to cause mast cells to grow in number and increases their activation. And we think that that ongoing activation is absolutely crucial to that barrier being maintained open. Uh, The disease is also a disease of remodeling. We think the mast cell is crucial to the remodeling aspect. So my lab is really focused on understanding what's driving that mast cell activation um, and understanding it at a molecular level and trying to to break apart those molecules and how we could potentially interrupt them Um, the other big thing that um, my research team really is focused on uh, is the interaction between hypermobility and dysautonomia and eosinophil gastrointestinal diseases and it's been well observed probably for about um, seven or eight years or so now at least maybe around 10 years um, that Aegid patients, especially EOE patients, seem to have an increased uh, amount of dysautonomia and uh, hypermobility. And so we have been regularly screening in our clinic now for hypermobility and dysautonomia and just absolutely impressed at the amount of hypermobility we found using something called a BITEN score, uh, which I recall you probably uh, tested on one as well. And so a really interesting intersection between our two professions at that point. Um, but what I quickly learned in my own patients was, is that these hypermobile patients behave quite differently than do the non-hypermobile patients. And so, uh, we are doing clinical research to understand really the behavior of these, um, of these patients and understanding them from the level of, um, their presentation. Do they have more inflammation? Do they have more symptoms? Do they have more scarring? Um, And we're using a very interesting tool to measure scarring now um, called EndoFlip. And this is a really neat tool where we can put a balloon into the esophagus, inflate the balloon and measure the stretchiness or the dispensability of the esophagus. And um, we are are defining the parameters that can help us understand Um, the rigidity of the esophagus, and then also then, of course, relating those back to those factors that we're quite interested in. So uh, I hope that gives you a bit of a flavor of what we're working on in my research team. But um, it really tries to think beyond sort of the core parameters of the disease, the things that sort of modify the disease and how it ultimately affects the patient's clinical outcomes, because I think for me, what drives me in the end is how the patients are doing in the end. I'm not so focused on the number of eosinophils, which is of course really important and we use that, but I'm even more focused on how the patients are doing. And that's really where um, I saw a potential benefit from what you offer, because so many of my patients, um, even though I can treat them and make their numbers better in their esophagus, they don't always feel better. And some of them maintain ongoing swallowing difficulty, the feeling of something being stuck in their esophagus, or they chronically regurgitate. In fact, we have a large number of patients that have um, small to moderate hiatal hernias. These are defects in the diaphragm that sort of allow an an open gate or open passageway between the stomach and the, and, the, and the esophagus, the esophagus sort of slips out of the diaphragm in a way that it's not allowed to maintain the tone in the lower esophageal sphincter. And so these patients chronically regurgitate, but if you work with them on diaphragmatic breathing and strengthening their core properly, they have markedly less symptoms over time. And so I've seen a lot of potential benefits for patients that have regurgitation, for ongoing swallowing difficulties, for chronic headaches. Um, and these are common symptoms in EOE patients. Um, and if ignored um, or sort of pushed off to someone else's turf, they might get you know, pushed to neurology, you know, or you, know, you might be doing an expensive workup uh, when really what's actually necessary for the patient to get better is simply just physical therapy. And um, so it's, just, it's been truly eye-opening for me, frankly.
0: Yeah, the, the we see so many hypermobile patients. Hypermobility is something we screen, the Bait and scale. We we talked about that. Um, just know that those patients tend to have TMJ problems because they're 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 breathing improperly, their tongues go down, they lose that that curvature of their neck because their head's so heavy and they're a little weak and loose. So I always tell my my physicians if if they can't hold their head up well and create the right lordosis the curve in the neck we end up having a little twist in the upper neck and it shifts the jaw and then you start chewing uneven and over time it starts to wear out one side and it causes problems tmj problems but it, it, like you said it stacks on top of a other problem underneath but pain drives people to do things about it. And um, we kind of unravel these patients so that they can start functioning better, you know, improved function. We're just functional therapists, we want to improve the function of swallowing breathing, um, just walking, gait, sitting posture, all of it. It's very simple. But if you know how to identify these patients, you will you will change their life you can change yeah. you know head and neck pain it can drive you a little crazy it can drive you to be very depressed and anxious For sure. and For sure. so um, i'm just so thrilled and impressed by you impressed by your research team impressed by your willingness to be vulnerable and open to learning something completely different but complimentary. So thank you so much, Dr. Weschler. I appreciate your time. And I hope everybody in the podcast has learned some things. And please share this with others. I think we need to really spread the word that this is this is
1: possible. So
0: thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much as well. It's a great experience to be here with you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Breathing Lab with Dr. Jenny.